0: at the book of Hebrews, which speaks maybe more than any other book specifically about the blood of Jesus and what it has accomplished for us and how good it is. And so we want to turn back to Hebrews tonight. We're going to try to finish these next few Wednesday nights, our studies in Hebrews. And I'd like to encourage you to turn tonight to chapter 12. We left off with the first couple of verses back in May and tonight we want to pick up reading in verse 3 Hebrews 12:3 For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons My son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Father, we pray that as we come together tonight that You would help us cling to and hope in nothing but the blood of Jesus and help us realize that if You did not spare Your own Son but delivered Him over for us all, how will You not also with Him freely give us all things, including all the discipline that we need to partake in Your holiness and to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You've promised to give us everything we need, and one of the things we need sometimes is the rod of your discipline. And we pray that you would not only remind us of our need tonight, but show us how to respond when you do bring down the rod. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Strassner home growing up, there was... uh, In the corner of the kitchen what could best be termed as a junk drawer. It was about 18 inches wide and about 24 inches long and about 12 inches deep and it was filled with all manner of cooking paraphernalia all sorts of things with hyphens in the names. Egg slicers, carrot peelers, turkey basters, cheese graters and so on. All those kinds of things trashed into this one drawer. It was kind of the catch-all for anything that was useful in the kitchen, but that wasn't silverware or a pot or a pan or an appliance of some sort. And probably most of you have a drawer like that, although it's probably not as big as my mother's was. But among all the things that were in that junk drawer, among all the junk that was there, the one item that stood out as most significant in the mind of a six-year-old little boy was a long-handled, wooden, scorched-on-one-end stirring spoon And the reason why, as you might guess, it was so significant is because it wasn't mainly used for stirring. It was mainly used uh, for stirring up my agitation and stirring up discipline in my rear end. And so when I heard the familiar creaking of that drawer opening up, uh, the thought usually didn't occur to me that I was about to enjoy a steaming pot of soup. The thought usually occurred to me that I was about to have a steaming mother and a steaming backside. And we all had earthly fathers and mothers to discipline us, the writer says, and we respected them for it. And the point of Hebrews twelve three through 11, thinking about the discipline that our parents, earthly parents, gave us is to remind us that our Heavenly Father has a junk drawer of His own. He has a drawer of discipline that is filled with such useful instruments as hard sermons, or rebukes from friends and more tangible things like sickness and financial stress and bizarre weather circumstances and fried computers and unanswered prayers and so on. And God reserves the right, says the author of Hebrews, to pull any one of those things out at a time of need and use them to get our attention or to slow us down or to chastise us for our sin and to get us back on track. God deals with us as sons. And what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? That's the overarching theme of this passage, that God, as our Father in love, has the right and often uses the right to discipline us, his children. I don't think most of us have a problem understanding that fact or even in a context like this, I don't think most of us have a problem accepting that fact. But the problem that comes to us is when it's time to respond to the Father's discipline. That's where we often, I think, falter. Because as long as things are going well and we don't seem to be under the discipline of the Lord, it's easy for us to say, oh, of course, the Lord can discipline us if He wants, and the Lord disciplines those He loves. We know that, and so when God disciplines us, it means He loves us. It's easy to say that when everything is well. But when the rod of discipline actually falls on our own backs, it's quite a different story. Because in those moments we're tempted to become confused or to become depressed or to become bitter with God, to grumble. We're tempted to forget just about everything that we've read in Hebrews 12. So I say again, it's not our understanding of God's discipline or our acceptance that He has the right to discipline, but our response when He disciplines that is really where we often falter. And so it's toward our response to God's discipline that I, and more than that, the author of Hebrews, primarily want to focus. And I think the practical key to this passage, the place in this passage where the rubber of God's discipline meets the road of our lives, is really verse 5. Verse 5 is the verse that helps us understand how to respond appropriately when God, in His love, as a parent, opens His kitchen drawer and pulls out some adversity and chastises us with it. How do we respond? In this verse, there's a twofold encouragement. I think you can see it fairly clearly. Two attitudes, two responses that we are to have when we are under the rod of discipline. Number one, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And number two, do not faint when you are reproved by Him. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, don't blow it off, don't scoff at it. And don't faint under it. In other words, don't give up. Don't be tempted to complain or murmur or become despondent. And with the rest of our time, I just want to put both of these encouragements. Don't regard the discipline of the Lord lightly and don't fade under it. I want to put these two encouragements under the microscope and examine them both from several different angles. So really just two main things to think about tonight. So then... Number one, when God opens His fatherly drawer of discipline, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not regard His discipline lightly. Now think with me. How might we be tempted to regard God's discipline lightly? I don't believe the temptation for most of us is usually to regard lightly the actual discipline itself. In other words... Our problem is not usually that we think to ourselves, oh, my troubles, no big deal. It's not that we're saying to ourselves, oh, well, the computer just died and I've lost six weeks worth of work, but no problem. It's a light thing. It's a small thing. We don't normally think to ourselves, well, four or five days in the hospital, not a big deal. I could use the time off work anyway. So that's not what he means. I don't think he means that we're tempted to regard the discipline or the difficulty itself lightly. Because the difficulty itself is usually the thing that makes us groan and faint and murmur and complain. We don't take the difficulty, the discipline itself, lightly. What is it then that he means? What do we take lightly sometimes? I think the author is warning us really against taking the purpose for the discipline lightly or the reason behind the discipline lightly. In other words, it's not the flat tires or the unanswered prayers that we're likely to overlook. What we're more likely to overlook is the reason why God is dealing such a blow to us. Or really, we're tempted sometimes even to overlook the fact that God himself is the one who is actually dealing the blow. That's what we regard lightly. So when the blow comes, we say, man, this really stinks. But sometimes we don't go beyond that and really regard what God is trying to say and what God is trying to do through this. And we regard really not just the discipline lightly, but God himself, the discipliner lightly. I'm afraid that when the author presents this possibility, he is exactly right because we do often regard lightly or overlook altogether the reasons for God's discipline or the fact of or the fact that it is God who is doing it. Let me just show you two ways that I think we're tempted to overlook God's discipline or to ignore or regard lightly the reason for it. One is that I think this is the chief one, especially in our context, we don't always recognize discipline as discipline. How do we regard lightly the discipline of the Lord? We don't always recognize discipline as discipline. Let me put that as plainly as I can. When you find yourself in the emergency room or changing a flat tire or banging on the side of your computer or laid up with a virus, how quickly does it occur to you that this present difficulty may, in fact, be the discipline of God on your life for some sin or unrepentance. How quickly do you think of that possibility? Perhaps you're heading in a direction you shouldn't head. Perhaps there's unrepentant sin in your life. Perhaps. There is a relationship that is fractured that you have refused to restore. Perhaps you need to see your sin a little bit more clearly. Perhaps you're running ahead of God and trying to do things on your own. Whatever it may be, does it occur to you when you're facing difficulty that God may actually be tripping you up and spanking you so that you will pay attention and repent? How often when you're faced with frustrations and failures... Do you pause to consider that God might actually be for your good, giving you a rod to your backside? Now, we need to be careful here and insert a disclaimer, and that is to say that Jesus reminds us, and we saw this a few weeks ago in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, that not all difficulty, not all disease, not all frustration and failure are the direct chastisement of God. Sometimes we face difficulty and failure and disease and so on simply because this is a fallen world in which we live. So I don't want you to think tonight if you're facing any difficulty that I'm observing your difficulty and saying you must be really sinning. Um, That was Job's friend's error. It's not always that way. But the point of Hebrews 12 is to remind us that very often it might be that you are suffering because God is chastising you because you won't repent or you won't listen to Him. And I don't think most of us consider that possibility that God is chastising us nearly as quickly as we should. For instance, I was sick last week for four days. And it was 48 hours before the thought ever occurred to me that God might actually have me laying here sick Because I need punishment and chastisement so that I'll pay attention to what he wants me to do, think, say, or how he wants me to repent. 48 hours I laid in bed before it occurred to me that this might not just be, well, I got something in Ethiopia. But maybe I got something in Ethiopia because God wanted to show me something, not in Ethiopia, but in my heart. I think that's the way all of us often respond, sometimes very slowly. When difficulty arises, I think the normal train of things is we think briefly about the physical reasons for whatever it is, the flat tire. We say to ourselves, did I pick up a nail? Did the sidewall blow? And then once we figure out what the immediate cause of the problem was, then we begin almost exclusively to think about how we're going to solve the problem. But we don't often pause to ask why it is that God might have put a nail in the road. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to do. Or when something more than a flat tire happens, when real calamity strikes, it's easy for us to say in the midst of that, certainly from the outside, but even in the midst of calamity, it's easy to say, well, God controls the wind and the waves and he's in control of this too. And we should say that. But often, though we say that God is in control... We aren't very quick to examine our own personal lives to see if there might be a reason why he's aimed this calamity at us. Is there something specific in my life, in my family, in my church that would cause this calamity to come on us? He could have sent it anywhere. And he sent it here. Why here? That's the question that the author of Hebrews wants us to ask. And we're very slow to ask it. And the saints of old weren't like us in this respect. Christians who've lived in centuries past when calamities struck, when the rains didn't come and there was famine or when wars broke out or when plague broke out, the Christians of old called for days of fasting and prayer. Not assuming that God was chastising them but seeking to know if He was. Have we offended you, God? Is there some area of repentance that we're not seeing? We're going to pause and fast and pray and we're going to ask you if this is your discipline on us. I've been reading just this spring the diary of a man named Kenneth McRae who was a pastor in Britain during the Second World War. And it's amazing to me as he just writes his thoughts in his daily journal how often he ponders whether or not the Second World War was perhaps God's scourge on a European continent that was almost wholesalely throwing out the Bible and the Christian faith. I don't know if he was right I don't know if that's what God was doing. But Hebrews 12 does teach us, I believe, that he was right at least to ask the question. When calamity strikes, one of the questions, not the only question, but one of the questions we should ask is, am I in sin? Why has God hurled this at us or at me? We need to ask that question when it's personal, when it's familial, when it's national or church crisis part of what it means to not regard the discipline of the Lord lightly, to notice when discipline is discipline and not just to chalk it up to the circumstances of a fallen world. The second way that we're tempted to take God's discipline lightly is that we don't always repent of our sins. Even when we realize that God is chastising us, we don't always repent. So let's say that you do begin to look for God's disciplinary hand in your personal difficulties. And suppose in a particular case you determine that He is using a certain sickness to chastise you for a poor habit or rebuke your prideful spirit or soften your heart towards some individual or stop you from going down the path you're going down. Suppose you realize that He is doing that. That's a good thing. But that's not where you stop because the real question is what are you going to do about it when you get well? If you realize God is chastising you, are you going to change your attitude? Are you going to change your behavior? Again, last week, after 48 hours, I finally considered the possibility that my sickness might just be God's chastisement in my life. And as I thought about it, it seemed very clear to me that the Lord had laid His kind but firm finger right in the middle of my chest and was pointing out at least one particular area of sin in my heart. And it was good that I saw it. I thank God for that. But now that I'm well, four days later comes the real test. Now the question is not just do I realize that sin and that God was chastising me for it and not am I thankful that He stopped the chastisement. The question now is am I going to do anything about it? Am I going to take my spanking and learn from it? Am I going to repent? Or is the Lord going to have to open His drawer again, this time perhaps for a larger spoon? We must all ask these kinds of questions. When we face difficulty, to make sure that we do not regard the discipline of the Lord lightly, that we don't overlook it and that we don't fail to learn from it. That's the first main response or the first main point. When we are under the discipline of the Lord, we don't regard it lightly. We take it seriously. Sin is serious and therefore God's discipline for it is as well. The second response, now the encouraging half of the message, I hope, is when you face the discipline of the Lord, verse 5, do not faint when you are reproved by Him. Do not faint when you are reproved by Him. So one temptation is that we might regard the discipline of the Lord too lightly. The other temptation is that we might let the discipline of the Lord weigh so heavy on our minds and our hearts that it causes us to faint, not literally perhaps, but to despair, to give up, to question God, to become dissolute and despondent. So some people are so certain that God is angry with them that they live their lives in a constant sense of defeat. And other people along these same lines are so angry about God's discipline that they spend their lives murmuring and complaining against it and never learn from it. But we who are hearing the word of God tonight are to do neither. When we are faced with the rod of God's chastisement, we need not collapse and we must not complain. We need not collapse and we must not complain. Do not faint when you are reproved by him. Now, in the course of these nine verses, our author gives us five exhortations, which, if we would take them seriously, will keep us from complaining and from collapsing. They will keep us from fault-finding and from fainting. Do not faint when you are reproved by him. How can I go about doing that? Well, five Exhortations He gives the first two you could really apply to any suffering and then all five of them apply specifically when the suffering is God's chastisement. I try to be quick with these. How can I prevent myself from feigning under the Lord's discipline? Number one, verse three, consider Jesus. When you're tempted to throw in the towel, when you feel like the Lord's hand of discipline on you is too much to bear, the pain is too much to bear, verse 3, consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Who is Him in verse 3 who's endured hostility against Himself? It's Jesus. The same one He's speaking about there in verse 2. We are to consider Jesus. In other words... If you think God has dealt you a difficult hand, think about Jesus for just a few moments. You and I, when we are chastised, are getting what we deserve. God is disciplining us because of our sins, because of our waywardness, because of our foolishness. But Jesus was never sinful, never wayward, or never foolish, and yet God chastised Him severely at the cross. Why? Why? Because of our sins and our waywardness and our foolishness. So when the hand of God is heavy on you and you think you've had enough, consider Jesus. Who got what you and I really deserve. Namely, death under God's curse. When you see your light and momentary afflictions in that light, a few days of acute illness or even a lifetime of disease is really nothing to faint or murmur over. Consider Jesus. Consider, too, that Jesus' chastisement there in verse 3 came at the hands of sinners. And picture what that means. You know the specific kind of sinners who chastised Jesus that day as He went to the cross. Jesus didn't simply have to deal with His Father dealing the blows, although Isaiah 53 says that God was pleased to crush Him. But in the heat of the moment, the actual hands that were doing it were sinful, despicable hands, Mocking Him, scourging Him, spitting in His face, shedding His blood. And almost without exception, our chastisements will never be that degrading. Never be that difficult. So when you think God has dealt you too much, consider Jesus, who got what our sins deserve. When you're convinced that God is handling you too roughly, when... You think that you can't take another minute of the pain when you're convinced that you really, quote, don't deserve this. You need only to consider Jesus to remember that it could be a lot worse and to remember that really, apart from God's mercy, it should be a lot worse for you and for me. We were the ones who earned what He got. Consider Jesus and you won't faint. Secondly, if you're... Under the hand of the Lord's discipline, consider your own sufferings. Consider your sufferings. When you're under the discipline of God, you're tempted to collapse or you're tempted to complain. And the problem is often that you aren't seeing your own sufferings in the right perspective. And You need the eyeglasses of Hebrews 12.4 to help you see straight. Listen to what it says. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now we can pause here and say, well, there are people who have gotten that far. I mean, there are Christians who are persecuted and so on, and we'll talk about them in a moment. But these Hebrew Christians hadn't, and you and I haven't, and the large majority of Christians in the world haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood and are striving against sin. Now there are a couple of truths here in verse 4. One is that God's discipline is handed out in order to help us strive against sin. It's there to help us. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the main truth here that's so obvious in verse 4 is that whatever you're suffering, it's probably not as bad as you're making it out to be. That goes for the discipline of the Lord and for sufferings in general. Whatever you're suffering, verse 4, it's probably not as bad as you're making it out to be. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now, when I was a boy playing ball, we had a little... A uh, rule, a saying, a kind of a tongue-in-cheek rule when we were playing ball that went like this. No blood, no foul. Some of you may have had that as well when you played basketball. In other words, stop whining about everybody fouling you. If you're not bleeding, it's okay. Now that's a crass way of putting it, but that's in some ways what verse 4 is saying to us. Verse 4 is not minimizing that there's real pain and suffering that we all undergo, but verse four is asking us to consider our flu bugs, our ruined transmissions, our financial straits, the tree limbs that fall on our roofs, the headaches that we get, the diseases that we run across. Hebrews twelve four is asking us to consider all of those things in light of what Jesus underwent. None of us have suffered yet like Jesus suffered, and if Jesus didn't complain when they shed His blood, how can we murmur when we have a crashed hard drive? How can we murmur even when someone says, you have cancer? We hurt and we grieve, but we never have the right in comparison to Jesus to complain. And Further, when we consider not just Jesus, but the way in which many of our international brothers and sisters in Christ suffer, we have to lay our hands on our mouths in this country because we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. We have not faced anything in comparison to what these persecuted Christians face. I read this week about a young Colombian woman named Luz, L-U-Z. She and her husband went out into a remote Colombian village where there was no church and they went there so that he could preach the gospel and plant a church and they could lead the church there. And she was pregnant with twins and when they got there they had spent some time there and her husband went out one day to the fruit stand or to some uh, little shop and was trying to share the gospel and some guerrilla rebels who didn't like what he was doing sharing the gospel kidnapped him and returned him to his wife two days later, dismembered in a plastic garbage bag. And she stays there and she continues to speak for Jesus. Now, considering the difficult providence of God in that woman's life, when she and her husband were doing what was right, we have no reason to murmur when God chastises us much more lightly for doing what is wrong. Consider your sufferings so that you do not murmur, complain, or faint. Thirdly, consider God's love for you. This is the most persistent undercurrent in these verses. That God's hands, though they are hard as steel sometimes in disciplining us, are loving hands. Verse 6, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. We understand this. And we understand it, the author says, in verse 7, because we've all experienced it in our own parent-child relationships, either looking up at our parents or down on our children. God deals with us as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you have children, you know that when the time comes to discipline that child, you want it to hurt. And you want it to hurt bad enough That they will sit up and take notice. But why? Why why would anyone want to hurt their child? Why why would we want to use hands of steel? Because we love them. Because we don't want them to keep making the same self-destructive mistakes that now are small and later will be great. We want them to learn their lesson now before the long arm of the law has to do the chastening. And more than that, we want them to learn their lesson now before the steel hands of God have to get more directly involved in their discipline. That's how the Lord deals with us. He wants it to hurt, but He chastises us comparatively lightly now so that He won't have to chastise us forever in hell later. So those light blows that he deals now sometimes do smart severely, but they're given with our long-term good in mind. They are given by loving hands. Verse 9, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? God's discipline, like our own human discipline, when it's done properly, I realize not everyone does it properly, but... When our human discipline is done properly, it flows from a heart of love, and so does God's. And verse 10 reminds us that as much as we try to discipline our children in love, and as much as our parents try to discipline us in love, God does it much better than we and than they. He says in verse 10, They, namely our parents, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good. You see there's a contrast there. The word but is there to contrast the way our parents discipline and the way God does it. We do, he says, what seems best. And that's good. We should do what seems best to us. But we may err. We may not know what's best. We may discipline in anger. We may discipline accidentally the wrong culprit. Julia may come in from outside with dirt all over her dress and I may take her into the back room and spank her for ruining her dress only to find out later that Andrew threw mud on her and that he should have been the one being disciplined. We may discipline in error sometimes. We may discipline sometimes too severely or too lightly. We discipline our children as seems best to us, but God always infallibly does what is best. the result of His discipline there in verse 10 is always our good. His love for His children and His discipline for His children is far better than ours could ever be. God never wears His kids out because He's frustrated with them. He never makes mistakes when He chastises them. His hands, though they are sometimes hard, are always motivated by love. And consider too that when He does chastise you, Father that He is, He's also the first one who is there to reassure you and to dry your tears, isn't He? Again, in this, we parents may fail. We may spank our kids and then shut them in their rooms and say, go cry by yourself. Or we may spank our kids or punish our kids in order to drive them away and get them out of our hair. But not God. He never disciplines us to drive us away. He always disciplines us so that in our pain we will come back to Him. And rest on his knees and receive comfort from his arms and learn wisdom from his heart. So believe this. God loves you. And when he disciplines you, it's not that he doesn't love you. It's not that he is angry with you. It's that his discipline is an extension of his love for you and his commitment to your well-being. And if you rest in that, you'll be freed up from all the temptation to collapse under the weight of the discipline or to complain against it. Consider God's love. Fourthly, if you don't want to faint or murmur against God, consider the alternative. Consider the alternative. What would your life be like if God didn't discipline you? Now, just individually, we can imagine what our lives would be like if God didn't discipline us. But look at what the text says. If you're struggling with God's discipline, ask yourself, what would be true of me if God just left me alone? Answer, verse 8, you'd be an illegitimate child. If you're without discipline, which all, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if God doesn't spank you now and again, you're not one of His own. This is what is so ridiculous about the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, by the way. They act as though, if we're really God's children, that we should always only ever be under the obvious, overt blessing and approval of God. But again, if you've ever had a parent or if you've ever been a parent, which is all of us, you know that that's just not what parenthood always looks like, is it? We're not always under the overt, outward, obvious blessing and approval of our parents, and the reality of the matter is that if someone can see the sin in our lives, the self-destructive sin in our lives, and still talk sweet to us all the time and still just shower us with wonderful gifts, A, they must not love us, and B, they must not be responsible for our behavior. They must not be mom and dad if they can watch us behave the way we do and still be nice and sweet all the time. called grandparents. And they don't often help In the process. Though, if you're a grandparent tonight, um, just take that as the Lord's discipline to you. (laughs) Parents want what is best for their children. And when parents see their children going off course, they don't continue to shower them with blessings, they shower them with discipline, lovingly but firmly. Parents don't just buy their kids new bikes, they also from time to time, have to show them who is boss. So, applicationally, if it seems to you in your life like God never, ever opens his drawer of discipline and pulls out his spoon and gives you a few blows on the backside, then something's wrong. Either you're not paying attention to what God is doing, or worse than that, you're not one of his own. Because if you're without discipline, then you're illegitimate children and not sons, verse 8. And if, on the other hand, it seems like God's discipline is sometimes too heavy for you to bear, remember that it's a sign that you are His child. It's an emblem of His love. It is a show of His commitment to your well-being. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Fifthly, if you're to keep from fainting and murmuring under the Lord's discipline, consider the benefits of it. Consider the benefits of it. Here, verse 11, is the key. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, that's obviously true as we look back on our own parents, most of us, I think. We didn't like it when they spanked us, when they grounded us, when they took away our baseball cards or whatever it may be. But we're glad for it now because now as adults, we look around some of us and we see that childhood friend whose parents weren't very attentive whose parents didn't discipline him the way our parents did, whose parents seemed almost to let him or her get away with murder. And we envied that child then, and we look on their lives now, and we're glad our parents didn't put up with our mess. We're glad our parents had a junk drawer and had something in it to remind us of who was boss and what was right. If that's true on an earthly plane, how much more is it true when we think of things eternal? That's really what verse 11 is speaking about. Things eternal. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. God's discipline. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. How many of you, I'm sure, would say tonight that you learned more about God, you repented of more of your sin when He brought chastisement into your life than when He brought overt, obvious, outward blessings. Always the case for people who really know God. And verse 11 says that it's so. God's discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Sanctification is what it's called in verse 14. We didn't read verse 14, but if you scan down there, you see that verse 14 urges us to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. It's the same idea in verse 14 as it is in verse 11. Discipline produces righteousness, righteous behavior. Sanctification is becoming righteous in our behavior. I want to ask you if you take verse 14 seriously. Pursue sanctification apart from which no one will see the Lord. Do you take that seriously? That's not teaching works salvation. It's simply a reminder that those who have been genuinely saved by grace through faith in Jesus are going to grow. Some will grow faster than others. Some will grow taller than others. But every true believer in Jesus is eventually going to grow in Christ's likeness, in sanctification, in what verse 11 calls righteousness. Romans 8, 29, and 30 guarantees us that that's true. Those whom God foreknew He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. If you really know God's Son, you will become like Him. And according to verse 14, if you never become like Him, if you never grow, if you're never sanctified, it's a sign that heaven's not your final destination. It's a sign that you don't belong to the Lord. It's a sign that you will not in the end see the Lord. Now, if that is true... Namely, without sanctification, without growth in Christ's likeness, without growth in righteousness, no one will see the Lord. If that is true, then how important is the Lord's discipline in our lives? Because verse 10 says it's the Lord's discipline that allows us to share in His holiness. And verse 11 says it's the Lord's discipline that yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's the Lord's discipline, in other words, that helps us to do verse 14, to pursue sanctification. So a... Crucial part, an indispensable part of our journey heavenward is God's discipline in our lives. No one ever makes it to the heavenly city without banging across quite a few of the potholes of discipline that the Lord has laid out on the road to eternity. And verse 7, it is for discipline or because of discipline that you endure the reason why so many people don't endure, the reason why so many seeming saints go speeding headlong off of the straight path out of the church and end up falling away is often because they're illegitimate children and therefore there are no potholes in their lane as they drive along. So they are able to drive as fast as they want. They're able to do whatever they want without so much as a speed bump laid in their way by the Lord and they end up catapulting over the edge, into the pit of destruction because they never were slowed down by God's discipline. So if you're slowed down by God's discipline, it's not such a bad thing, isn't it? Don't despise the discipline of God. Don't faint under the discipline of God. It is for discipline that you endure. If it weren't for God's chastisement tripping you up from time to time, there's no telling how quickly all of us would already have plunged over the cliff and into hell. So consider Jesus, consider your suffering, consider God's love, consider the outcome of God's discipline and consider the alternative if he doesn't discipline. Now let me conclude by reminding you that the Bible says James is like a mirror. And I want to help you now to hold up Hebrews 12, 3 through 11 like a mirror in front of your own face just by asking you a series of questions that I hope you will think on and determine to get answers to. Are you facing some in your life right now, some difficulty, sickness, frustration, stifled plans? And if so, have you considered the possibility, not the guarantee, but at least the possibility that these problems may exist in your life right now as a form of God's discipline for your sin? Is God trying to slow you down? Or maybe is he trying to give you a kick in the pants and speed you up because you've been dragging your feet in obedience? Is he trying to bring you to repentance over some sin? Is he trying to guide you back onto the straight way? Have you paused to consider that question? Has he perhaps tonight or maybe for some of you before tonight used chastisement already to put a finger on some area of sin or waywardness or foolishness? Maybe you already know that God is chastising you. Have you come to terms with the fact that as your father, he has the right to do that? And more than that, have you come to realize that though all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, it's not as bad as it could be? Indeed, it's not as bad as it should be if God gave you all that you deserved. Have you come to realize and relish the fact that the stripes of God that sometimes lay across your backside are an emblem of his love, of his commitment to your well-being? Have you thanked him for that? Have you thanked him for the fact that without these necessary potholes, you would have already gone headlong into hell? More important than all of these things, if the Lord does or has shown you that He is disciplining you and He puts His finger on the specific area of your life, have you repented? Or if He's just showing you tonight, will you repent? Will you repent? Now, more than all of those things, the most important question of all really is this. Have you come to realize... And rejoice in the fact that God's love for you is not demonstrated most clearly by the swollen stripes on your backside, but by the bloody stripes on Jesus' back. Truly, God scourges every son whom he receives, and Jesus most of all. And by his scourging, Isaiah says, we are healed. Have you thanked God for that? that in the midst of your own chastisement, as much as it hurts, that it was Jesus and not you who got what you really deserve. How merciful God is to us in Jesus. And remembering that, when your Heavenly Father from time to time lays His steel hands across your backside, verse 3, consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, hostility that we deserved so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God loves you. Even if you can't see that in your discipline, you can see it in the discipline that God poured out on Jesus on your behalf.